0: Well, hello everybody and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. Now I'm sure everybody's missed this series a little bit. We skipped a week to get some really important work done on the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, series here. Doing a twofer probably next week to help people understand it. But that meant skipping a week of Romans. I tried to record it earlier in the morning last week, and it just didn't pan out. You know, family stuff got in the way of that, and family comes first. But that said, we can jump right in. If you have a Bible handy, I would love it if you opened up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be starting in the 18th verse. And now a warning. We are going to start talking about election and predestination soon. we're going to start that up today. And uh, if you have strong opinions on election, I am sure that you will be upset. You will probably be mad. I'm going to try to present everything very gently so that people can understand what the Word of God says and what it doesn't say. We'll get into the important matters there, but let's go ahead and read starting in... The broad overview of this passage has to be taken into account before we get to the details. After all, St. Paul just said in verses 16 and 17, which we covered in the last episode, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. St. Paul, getting into the theology of the cross, this life is your wilderness wandering. This life is tough. There is suffering. And are there times of relief from the suffering? Are there times of good and plenty? Sure. But we covered that, yes, at the end of the day, everything boils down to first pain than glory. We don't have paradise on this earth. We are waiting for God to come and fix everything. So with that said, St. Paul having just dropped that bomb on people, he takes the time to then compare present suffering with future glory and get into how that works. And it's not just our suffering. So he says in verse 18, summarizing everything he's going to say up to verse 30, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. So present suffering, future glory. That's how it works. First pain, then glory. Versus the rest of the world, the unbelieving world, which they get the closest they're ever going to get to heaven, And then comes the judgment, where the rest of eternity for them is pain. It is eternal suffering. So, we continue on in verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, the ESV study Bible here, the Lutheran study Bible, I'm going to disagree with it. It says, personification of all created beings and things waits with intense expectation for the full disclosure of the new transformed existence in heaven. It says that, well, we're personifying. St. Paul is personifying creation when he says that it waits with eager longing. Is that really the case? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to doubt. I'm going to press X to doubt that that's really what St. Paul is saying is, I'm gonna pretend that creation is a personified thing here to illustrate something. No. Creation actually does suffer with us on account of the sinful state of mankind and the fallen state of the world. You know, animals weren't supposed to die either. Animals weren't supposed to get cancer. German shepherds were not supposed to have hip problems. Mosquitoes weren't supposed to be disease-ridden, plague-carrying, terrible parasites that ruin your vacation. The earth itself, the land and the sea, was not supposed to have constant destruction and eruptions and erosions and earthquakes blowing up and destroying and cracking the whole thing. It is clear that this world has fallen, and there is a sense in which All creatures suffering means all creatures waiting for deliverance. Our Lord Jesus talks in the gospel about how, listen, the animals, like the birds of the air and everything, they wait for God to feed them. Animals know that God exists. Maybe they don't have the same kind of rational understanding of as much as humans do, but that's to their advantage because they're not fallen and we are. Animals, creation itself... All of it suffers on account of mankind's sin in the curse that is on the earth. So I'm going to hesitate before I claim that St. Paul is just using a turn of phrase. Now when it does come to the revealing of the sons of God, however, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, what does that mean? It means that, yes, when mankind is redeemed, when that program of redemption happens, then there is no use for a curse. In the book of Revelation, St. John says, I believe in Revelation chapter 21, that there will no longer be a curse because there will be no more sin ever. So there's no need for it. God removes that curse upon creation when he says, cursed is the ground because of you to Adam. That's no longer there. Creation is waiting for that moment When the church militant becomes the church triumphant on earth, then the fallen world becomes the perfect world. I believe that is what St. Paul is getting at. And he continues here in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what happened to creation when God cursed the ground on account of Adam? It was subjected to futility, and it was put in bondage to corruption. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, in part by futility, when you think about Ecclesiastes and vanity, everything, dying. Nothing lives forever. Well, my goodness, that means the same futility that Solomon notices in Ecclesiastes also applies to puppy dogs and squirrels and cats and birds and ants and bees and just about anything that lives eventually is going to die. Even the gigantic redwood trees that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, eventually they die too. But also, corruption. So with futility and corruption, we see with corruption, sickness, erosion, entropy. You know, entropy sounds all nice and scientific when we think about, ooh, look, this thing gets far away from that thing. Oh, yes, the beachheads erode because of the water. You know, all that stuff isn't supposed to happen. That is a mark of corruption. Think about it. According to the modern scientific worldview there is going to be a point due to erosion over thousands of years if nothing happens that um, all land is covered in water. I know Al Gore really worries about that with global warming or whatever and climate change but according to erosion theory and the observation that that's what's happening to the sands the rocks everything there should be a point provided Christ doesn't come back before then, that literally everything is underwater. The ocean just takes it and dredges it in. That's, uh, that's bad. That's a sign of corruption. That's a sign of something that should not happen, that the waters should be used to destroy the land. And this might sound silly to some of the more scientifically minded, but it's true. This is the sort of thing that just happens. So it's a bondage to futility It is a bondage to corruption. So all of creation, everything alive, and everything that has any sort of personality to it is waiting, waiting for freedom. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. Again, mankind redeemed means that the world is no longer fallen. There is no longer a cause for that fall. You will no longer have forest fires destroying homes. You will no longer have volcanoes blowing up and destroying entire cities or countries or land masses. You'll have a perfect creation. This is why in verse 18 he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. St. Paul isn't going to get into all the details of what that's going to look like, in part because it hasn't been revealed to us just how perfect it's going to be. It's really good. It's really, really good. But it's going to be revealed later. That said, we continue on here in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Note here that St. Paul is connecting you to the rest of creation here, which tells us a little bit of something important. We covered in chapter 7 that sin is not natural. Death is not natural. This isn't supposed to happen. So when St. Paul talks about creation being subjected to futility and bondage, you got to think about yourself. You, as a Christian, you struggle with sin. Because it's not natural. It, it's not you anymore. It's sin in your old flesh dwelling inside of you, trying to get you to engage in that corruption and futility. It's trying to get you to go in an unnatural direction. So when you're saved, you have the same attitude as the rest of creation, not the rest of mankind. Remember, everybody out there that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, that is not a baptized believer in Jesus, they're not going to have a natural attitude. They're not going to have a natural outlook. But when you are saved, something changes in you to make you as you ought to have been from the beginning to bring you closer to an actual, natural man or woman. This is important, because if the rest of creation, if all the animals out there, if all of everything that's ever been created, with the exception of humanity, groans for redemption, sees the unnatural state of things, and wants something better, wants to be delivered from a body of death, you, too, as a believer, start to take that attitude. Creation waits for redemption and the revealing of the sons of God. So too does St. Paul here say, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You are changed to be more natural, not just supernatural. We often think that what happens to a Christian is, oh, you go from non-believer to believer, and this is a big supernatural change. And yes, what happened to you required the supernatural act of God to bring you from a sinner, from being a sinner, to being a saint, to being someone that is simul justus et peccator. However... It does not make you supernatural. It makes you what you were supposed to be, or at least closer to it, until our Lord raises us from the dead, until that final day. So we trust in our Lord Jesus to save us, to return, to redeem us fully, to bring us to the resurrection in perfect bodies and with a creation, with a universe that we live in, that is no longer subjected to all the ugly stuff we see out there, all the natural disasters and diseases and other terrible things. And it is a hope. So Saint Paul does say in verse 24 and 25, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now I know somebody is going to say, you know, this sounds like plan trusting. Just trust the plan, right? And I know we've all had this kind of jaded attitude that comes with, Hey, listen pal, I've been I've been let down before. you got to show me something. And if you're going to tell me just hope, just trust the plan, it'll all work out, here's the promises, and we won't give you all these details 100% yet, but trust me, it's going to be good. Somebody could say that about St. Paul here because he says that the glory is going to be revealed to us. We don't know everything about it yet. And everything is waiting for that. And here he is talking about hope. Well, there's a difference. St. Paul is not telling you to have a blind hope in somebody that never did anything for you. St. Paul is not telling you, trust the plan and I'm I'm not going to show you anything or do anything for you. Just trust it. He's not saying that. Remember, he has talked about what Jesus has already done for us, and he's already talked to us about how our former bondage to sin was leading to death everywhere. Like, we saw this, even in our own lives, before we were Christians, the kind of degenerate, ugly way that we lived and the pain that that caused us. So, St. Paul has shown you something. And he has said Jesus Christ died on a cross for you. He's already shown that, and we can already see the changes that have been made in our own hearts. So this hope is not a blind faith. It's not a hope that says, I'm ignorant, but I'm going to expect something good. It is an informed hope. Now, he does say, who hopes for what he sees? well that's kind of the definition of hope is that you don't see it yet i'm going to step out and i'm going to expect this good this assurance of what has been promised to me based on what i've been told but i don't see it yet if it was already there if people were just getting resurrected all the time and we saw this and we saw creation no longer under a curse there's nothing to hope for it's just a present reality that you engage in So he's saying it's not yet, but the Kingdom of God has an already-but-not-yet tone to it. Now he knows this is hard. He knows that this is a difficult thing, that this is what all of creation is hoping for. This is what we are hoping for, what we are groaning for, to no longer have to live in the kind of destroyed, fallen world that we live in, and to no longer be in a destroyed, fallen body. So he says in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit is going to help us in this. We don't even know what to expect, we don't even know what to pray for. This is hard. We are suffering. Life is difficult. I I can't even tell you all this stuff that I've had to go through in my personal life. Maybe you've gone through worse. But this Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit who dwells within each and every one of us baptized believers, is there, praying for us, interceding for us in ways that he calls it groanings too deep for words, I mean, that's probably because we just don't understand what he's saying as the Spirit prays to the Father for us, on our behalf, to help us. And it says in verse 27, explaining that a little bit, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, to reassure you, as the Holy Spirit is praying for you, on your behalf... Our Heavenly Father, who searches the hearts and the minds, he hears it. He cares about you. You are not alone in the midst of this. No man is an island when it comes to Christianity, because God sees it. He cares. He's hearing your prayers. He's hearing the prayers of the Spirit. And, well, he acts. In verse 28, we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If the Father hears what the Spirit is saying on your behalf, then he sees that and he loves you. He cares about you, so he will make sure that everything comes to that head, that it goes in that direction of the good and the perfect that you ultimately groan for, that you want, that all of creation wants. So this is very important because we do see that verse as kind of a bumper sticker verse. It's a verse that ends up on bookmarks, on t-shirts, on uh, counseling sessions. Like you'll see that in a frame somewhere on a poster. Yes, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Absolutely. Are we always going to see that? No, because we do have to wait for the redemption that God has promised. But does God hear us and answer our prayers. Yes. And oftentimes, more often than we know, he does it for our ultimate good. Things are painful now, but God does bring us relief in this life and ultimate relief, ultimate deliverance in the next. Now, now we get to the hard part. Now we get to election, (laughs) predestination. St. Paul says it is for those who are called according to his purpose. For, in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And to those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified." Now, a little bit about Lutheran hermeneutics. We say what the Bible says. We also don't say what the Bible doesn't say. Election and predestination are probably the hottest button issue ever in the history of Protestantism, ever since the advent of Calvinism, because of verses like these, uh, 29 and 30 here, that lead people to feel like they have to come to a conclusion. They have to understand the mechanics of this. They got to, got to, got to do this because otherwise, uh, the whole faith could maybe fall apart. With Lutheranism, we want to see what the word says. And if it doesn't say something, I'm going to hold my peace. If it's a mystery to me, I'm going to hold my peace for that. I'm not going to let it bug me and I'm not going to try to solve the puzzle, so to speak. So first, we go to verse 28 and we look at that last clause there. For those who are called according to his purpose. First off, everybody is called. Everybody is called to faith in Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus says in John 12, verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, Will draw all people to myself. Jesus has extended the call to literally everybody. Everybody, in some way, shape, or form, in the depths of their souls, knows that they are being called to faith in a Savior. So that's first and foremost. Everybody has that call. But then God says, according to His purpose. So there's a special purpose for those people who are called in a special way. Those are the people that we say in verse 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Specifically for those who are called according to his purpose. So then we get to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So, we have foreknowledge and predestination. What does all that mean? Well, foreknowledge is knowing something beforehand. God knows people before they ever existed. And he also then, some of them anyway, these people, those who are called according to his purpose, are the ones whom he not only foreknew, he also predestined to what? To salvation? No, not exactly. It says he also predestined them to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. What is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Is that being saved? Is your salvation, Is does it consist of looking and acting like Jesus? No. No, you are not saved by that predestination. You are saved by the blood of Jesus who died for you. You are saved through faith in him who in his resurrection established the justification by faith for you. You are not saved by election. You are not saved by predestination. So we have to look at what the text says here. If you are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that's sanctification. The more you act like Jesus... The more you obey his commandments, the more people see Jesus when they see you, the more holy you are. That's sanctification, not salvation. If St. Paul was saying, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be saved, to have eternal life, he would have said so. Instead, he said, to be conformed to the image of his son. He predestined you, O believer, to be more like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christ is the firstborn from among the dead, and he wants people that are also raised from the dead for paradise, for the new heavens and new earth, to be more like him, to be uh, unsinful, so to speak. This is all incredibly important. God does not resurrect you so you can be an eternal sinner. He doesn't save you so that you can go raise hell in heaven. So the purpose of this predestination that St. Paul is bringing up, we're not saying that there isn't other predestinations, but this verse is bringing up that he predestined your sanctification to work on you, something the Holy Spirit does in our hearts all the time, as we've been seeing throughout this uh, Bible study series. Then he says... Then he says, and and again, I'm sure people are already arguing with me as I'm speaking here. Let's get to verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Okay. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I want you to look at the grammar here. This is incredibly important those whom he predestined, he also called, refers right back to verse 28. Those who are called according to his purpose. So, if you are predestined for sanctification, it means, yes, indeed, you are called. And in a special way, because our Lord Jesus draws all men unto himself, everybody receives a call, but this is a special call to those are among what you would call the elect. And then he says those whom he called he also justified. Are you justified by election? Are you declared righteous by election? No, you are declared righteous, dikaiuo, by faith in Jesus Christ. So St. Paul is not saying here, that the act of predestining someone or declaring something about them from eternity past is what justifies them. No, God justifies you. Through what? As we've seen in everything in Romans, through faith in Jesus. So he calls you because he predestined you to be sanctified. So God being the only actor in salvation, He brings us to faith in Jesus, and through that faith, he justifies us. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's very interesting. Every single one of the verbs in this verse here, stuff God is doing, is in the aorist, indicative, active, and third person singular. So we know that God is the one doing this. And by the way, he's not doing it he already did it meaning if you are called and then you are justified and then you are glorified that is an already for you that's not in the future it does not say those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he will will also justify it does not say that it says He glorified, edoxasen. That means that God has already rendered you glorious. Something that is already, and already but not yet. We are waiting for the glory of the adoption as sons, but we are already considered saints of the Most High. Now, that means that the predestination here is not a predestination unto salvation. Otherwise, we destroy the Christian faith. Because God could have just zapped you to say you were saved, and Jesus is superfluous. There is no reason to have a Christ crucified for you if you are saved by election. Oh, you could say, but but no, 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 see, Jesus died to make sure that those who were elect unto salvation could have the stain of sin removed. Well, listen, pal, you could have had that with animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Or worse... You're demoting Jesus Christ to a cleanup crew. Something doesn't add up if election is what saves you, but election here is not presented as being elect unto salvation. Election here is being presented as elect or predestined unto sanctification, so that when you, who are justified and saved by our Lord Jesus Christ, justified through faith in Him, then you are going to see the fruit of your predestination in already being glorious, already being glorified. And then, yes, you will be justified. But that's through Jesus. Remember, St. Paul has been saying that grace is more or less resistible. People can be called, and they can follow after Christ, and they can be sanctified even, but not all who are called are chosen. Right? We don't know if that's a choosing from eternity past, or a choosing at the end of the age. Depends on whether or not they have faith in Jesus, who is the one we should be seeing as our Savior. And unfortunately, some people, though they may be regenerate in terms of having been baptized, they give it up. They leave the faith. And so, what they were predestined to be, and even their period of time in which they were glorified, they give that up and end up damned. It is unfortunate, but it's true. We, we really have to get this grammar right. Because what often happens, if you look at the Calvinists, and I'll try to be charitable here, but a lot of Calvinist soteriology boils down to at one point in eternity past, God made a sovereign declaration, a decree regarding who was going to be saved and who wasn't. And there is no rhyme or reason that we can perceive regarding who was saved and who was not. There is nothing to us that deserves it and no merit. Therefore, for very mysterious reasons, God decided that you would go to heaven, if indeed you are a member of the elect. Now, question for you. Where's Jesus in that? Where is Jesus? Well, they'll bring up, well, there's federal headship. Christ died on that cross so that we no longer would be under the headship of Adam, but under the headship of Christ instead. But but is that telling us the reason you're saved? It really doesn't. Look, God has a reason that he saved you. And the reason, first and foremost, is because he loved you. But Also, because he sees that you have faith in Jesus. Now, can he bring you to faith in Jesus? Is he the one who enlightens us? Yes, but grace is resistible. All men are drawn to Christ. All men are called, but not all of them are going to believe. So those who are called and then enlightened they are shown the truth of the word. They hear the word of God. They see that the sacraments are efficacious. Maybe they'll see that too. And they, they hold on to it. They accept what God has revealed when he brings them to faith. So when you are converted and God sees that and he sees that, okay, I brought you to the faith. I revealed the truth to you. I changed your heart and you stuck with it. You've accepted that. You're not resisting that. He goes, okay. By your faith in Jesus, you are justified. I declare you righteous. There is a rhyme and a reason behind it. We don't have to look at election as this really, really mysterious thing. We don't understand it, and I won't teach what it doesn't say. But it's not like God wrote up a couple lists of random names and then created people that had those names, and, oh, you weren't on the right list, pal, so you're damned. That's not how this works. But on the flip side we get the arminian understanding of it which also has some issues see while jacob arminius himself the actual man was a lot more calvinist than people give him credit for the arminian position of absolute libertarian free will denying that we cannot save ourselves or bring ourselves to saving faith is kind of predicated on this idea that, well, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Well, God knows that you will make a free choice to believe in him, and therefore, having seen that from eternity past, he decided that you were elect. That's kind of like watching a movie before you write its script. (laughs) And God knows that you aren't going to make any other choice... So seeing your choice, then he made a decree that's kind of meaningless. It's, it's under the same confusing understanding that uh, Arminius had that, well, yeah, it really is predestination that saves you, but it's predestination predicated on you having faith from your free will. It, does that make sense? I saw that you were going to make this free choice, so therefore I predestined you to be saved according to this free choice you made. And I'm I'm not trying to rankle ankles here. I'm not not trying to flick people on the head and make them feel angry or stupid. But there is a tendency among some of the harder Calvinists to almost do away with Jesus through their particular determinist soteriology. And on the flip side for Arminians, to make things just really, really confusing. (laughs) To say it's your free will that God knew about so he determined that you would do no other because you really did make a, a free choice that you, you never really knew about. Both parties are taking the issue of salvation and they're misplacing it on the timeline here. They're misplacing the vehicle of salvation and saying that it happened from eternity past rather than at the cross. It is Jesus who saves you, not predestination. St. Paul is bringing up predestination as a gospel thing. It's a good thing that you are predestined for sanctification. After all, God saves you because of faith in Jesus. It is through that faith that you are saved, trusting in him for your salvation, not a decree that you can't understand or know about. Now, does this mean automatically that either party is 100% Wrong. No. What I'm going to say is that how things worked back in back then before the universe was created, we have no clue how that works. It could be Calvinist, I guess. It could be Arminian, maybe. Certainly not double predestination. The scripture does not teach that whatsoever. But we don't know the mechanics of it because St. Paul is not telling us what exactly Foreknowledge is. Is it foreknowledge of your, your own personal choice or is it foreknowledge of you as a person that he likes for some reason? No. It is foreknowledge of you as somebody that he calls to be sanctified. And by the way, St. Paul does say that it's called according to a purpose for sanctification. My question to you is. Is is that the sanctification that we see, being conformed to the image of Christ, is that all in this life? What do we say about those who were um, called and they're baptized and they die? Were they not conformed enough to the image of Christ, or is there more conforming to the image of Christ after? We're not given a full answer of that. Oh, you you get baptized and then you die. So you have the initial sanctification. Uh, You're regenerate. Great. Oh, you died. Oh, well, didn't see any fruits in that guy's life, so maybe he wasn't elect. (laughs) He just got into a car crash right after his baptism. Guess you're in hell, bud. No, we can't say that. So are we sure exactly what this means or how this works? No. We're given a, a direction. We're given some of the purpose for it, the reason for it. And the reason for it is... Look at how good things are going to be for you, O believer, trust in Jesus, hope in him. Not any number of the interesting ways that people have tried to solve this puzzle. If we're not given all that data here, the Lutheran church will confess, according to the formula of Concord, that we will say it's a mystery. We will get into more of that, for everybody who's angry at me, we will get into more of that In future installments of this series, especially when we get to chapter 9. But until then, I do want to encourage everybody listening that election and predestination, however it works out, it is a matter of gospel. It is always brought up in terms of gospel, not law. Because what is happening to the believer, what God intends for you, what he has on your plate. The paradise that he's promised is good, it's amazing, it's fantastic. So let us not resist his grace. Let us rejoice in the salvation he offers us through faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again, that we may be justified. Amen and amen.